It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. Experience more episodes, videos, and Bible study resources at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, do Christians have to go to church? Now, be a good Christian and go to church. This will make God happy, and you'll feel better as well. It sounds so simple, but is it? Is going to a church every week one of the keys that unlocks a future in heaven? The Bible has a lot to say about this, but its answers may not be what you expect. Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 25 years, and Julie, a longtime contributor, is also with us. Uh, Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for this episode? Revelation 3.22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his disciples in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all the nations. He told them to baptize these disciples and teach them all that he had taught and commanded them to know and do. Ten days later, God's Spirit came upon the apostles, and this is where the Christian church had its beginning. Fast forward 2,000 years, and we find Christianity divided into countless denominations. So, we see an apparent decline in Christianity as church attendance seems to be steadily decreasing. Is going to church a significant marker for being a true Christian? To have a real answer for this question, we need to establish a clear understanding of the scriptural relationship between church and its role in a true Christian's life. According to a recent article in The Atlantic magazine, 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the last 25 years. That's approximately 12% of the population. To quote, participation in a religious community generally correlates with better health outcomes and longer life, higher financial generosity, and more stable families, all of which are desperately needed in a nation with rising rates of loneliness, mental illness, and alcohol and drug dependency, end quote. So Rick and Jonathan, the people who study such things are trying to figure out why. And abuse and moral scandals certainly come into play. Many people simply got out of the routine during COVID and they just haven't come back. But a lot of it has to do with our burned out lifestyle. The majority of us have to work, go to school, take care of family. Spending optional hours in church on Sunday is time we just don't have. But people are looking for meaning and their connection. And they're looking outside of church. And that's a sad thing. That's a sad thing because as we will see, we're looking for connection, but we're not willing to put the effort into getting the connection that can actually build us up. Let's begin by establishing what the church is and therefore what it is not. The word for church is pronounced in English, ecclesia. It means a calling out, concretely a popular meeting, especially a religious congregation. So this is a very specific word, a calling out uh, a religious congregation. Jesus himself introduced this specific word into Christianity when he described what the basis of true discipleship would be once he finished his earthly ministry. So let's go to where Jesus introduces this word, Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, 
and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus tells us he's going to build his, build his church, this ecclesia, upon this rock, this foundation. What foundation? The one he's praising Peter for understanding, that basis for who he is. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, he said. Jesus is the foundation. And we see that further in 1 Corinthians 3.11. It says, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. One more, Ephesians 1.22 in the New Living Translation said, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. Christ alone is the head of his church. So this, I will build my church, starts at Pentecost, making it something completely different from the Jewish faith of the Old Testament. This is an important factor because Jesus is saying, I will build my church upon the foundation of who I am. How did he do that? Well, let's trace the steps. After Pentecost, the development of this church began with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So you have Pentecost and the, and, and the Spirit coming down upon the apostles. This is right after those events, Acts chapter 2, verses 46 to 47. And this is from the King James Version. And they continually daily and on one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily as such should be saved. Now, several translations leave the Greek word for church out by saying the Lord was added to their number day by day. But the thought is the same. It is, and it's important, the, the number. So what we're looking at is the, the formulation of this church. Upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus wasn't talking about a building. He's talking about the people, and that's what the Acts 2, 46 and 47 is really bringing out. They added to their number. The church was adding, being added to. Let's go a little further. Um, we've, we've got this set up. Julie, what happens next? So again, we're looking to see what church means scripturally. In this next example of how this word in Greek is used for the word church, the Apostle Paul tells people what he had done back when he was known as Saul of Tarsus. His objective had been to destroy the church. Galatians 1, 13 to 14. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Saul of Tarsus wasn't tearing down buildings. He was going after people. That, everybody knows that, but we don't think about that. When he's talking about he's going to persecute the church, the ecclesia, that's the word. He's going after the group of people who are standing for Christ. Of course, we know that Saul of Tarsus didn't stay that way. He is converted. Once he's converted, the Apostle Paul's new objective as an apostle was to build up the church for God's glory. And this is, you want to talk about a complete, total, 180-degree turnaround. He's going to destroy it, and then he spends the rest of his life sacrificing himself to building it up. Ephesians 5, 22 to 27. Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The Apostle Paul uses that word church in these verses, one, two, three, four different times. He's looking at the people. He wants that the, the church to be presented in all of her glory without spot or wrinkle uh, before Christ. There's a beautiful picture of the individual followers of Christ being combined together to be the church. So these verses clearly teach us, they tell us that the church is the people. It's the congregation. It's the group of called out ones, whether they're in one local area or spread out throughout the world. It's the, it's, it, their, their common ground is following Jesus as his disciples and being given God's spirit. So the church is used to describe small groups of people, small congregations, the congregation of Christians at large at one point in time, or congregations overall. Understanding this helps us to see the depth of the message that was given to the seven churches in Revelation. Now, in these Revelation chapters, many Christians see these messages as general prophetic warnings and guidance for Christians, and, and rightfully so. In the first three chapters of Revelation, Jesus instructs John to write messages to the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. These are seven real places. They're all located in present-day Turkey, and we can learn a lot from the specific message that was sent to each in the context of their actual history. However, we understand these seven churches to have a prophetic meaning as well, corresponding to seven successive periods of time during which the gospel message went forth. And this started at Pentecost, like we said, with the church at Ephesus, and it ends with a message to us now, represented by the last church at Laodicea. And the followers in each time frame receive this specialized message. Jesus addresses all seven churches throughout this whole time period with the same final words in Revelation 3, 21 to 22. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, the message is not just to those literal seven churches, but were also messages to all of Jesus's followers in each time frame of development. And you notice how the phraseology is to the churches. And so it's showing us that in different periods of time, you're looking at the people as God called out, God's called out ones. And it's really important for us to realize that. So when we talk about, well, are we supposed to go to church? Maybe, maybe we need to rethink that question. Instead of asking, do Christians have to go to church? Knowing what we know now about the church being the people, the congregation made up of people now and in different places and throughout history, maybe our question should be, what should true Christians do to be disciples of Christ and be true members of the church? Do Christians have to go to church? We're looking at that question, and the answer is, yeah, yeah, you really should. Absolutely, positively should. However, that's not the big point here. That's not what we're focusing on here. What we're focusing on 
is something much bigger, much, much more significant. Jonathan, am I just going to church, or am I striving to be part of the church? The understanding that the church is the people and not a building is profound. This means that we don't simply enter the church on Sunday, but we in fact should live as a part of the church every day of the week. This, this fact significantly redefines our responsibilities and privileges. Let this sink in. We should live as parts of the church all the time. If we're Christians, that's what these few verses that we've talked about thus far with this word for church actually means. It is a much bigger picture than many of us may have thought previously. So, being a faithful Christian is not about showing up or going to church. Rather, it's about being one who is a part of the church. True Christians are the church. How do we break this knowledge down into pieces that will help us clearly understand it. Having a truth opened up to you, well, that's just the beginning. Now, now is when the work begins. Now we need to pay close attention as to how the scriptures show us what this truth is built upon so we can learn how to live it in faith. It is no surprise that the Bible is full of wonderful powerful examples and applications of what being the church really means. We talked about how church membership here in the United States is rapidly declining, but just on some interesting news, there is a $100 million marketing campaign going on right now called He Gets Us. You might have seen advertised, a lot of money going into that, Super Bowl ads and ads on TV, etc., their goal is to separate Jesus and his teachings from Christians who say one thing but do another, and they've created, as this movement is saying, a distorted or incomplete picture of his radical compassion and love for others. So I've got more to say on this later, but by focusing on learning about Jesus and not necessarily going to church, they hope more people will live out his teachings. And that's a very, very good uh, uh, hope and approach. We want to live the teachings of Christ, and we want to do it every single day, because that's what being part of the church is. So, good. Kudos to that effort. We'll, we'll expand on what we believe that that effort really should bring us to. So let's delve a little bit deeper. As the Apostle Paul worked on building up the church for God's glory, he did so by illustrating the very significant relationship between Jesus and the church in a few powerful ways. All of what he taught had its basis in Jesus' own teaching. So now we're going to begin to un unpack some of the things that the Apostle Paul taught us about the church. Rereading a few verses of Ephesians 5, we see Paul's first illustration. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The connection between spouses is both significant and inspirational. So it's a picture of how the church is supposed to be connected to Jesus. And we're going to build on this unmistakable connection of marriage. And it, it, that is a very, very powerful way to look at the church. So 
keep that in mind as we go forward here in this in this segment. John the Baptist, John the Baptist, before Christianity began, before, you know, when, when Jesus is just, just, just on the scene, John the Baptist revealed that this connection was in place, even as Jesus was just beginning to preach. Let's look at John chapter 3, verses 28 to 30. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, was saying, Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm his friend, cheering on this wonderful event that's happening. I have the privilege of introducing the bridegroom. The bride of Christ, the church, will increase, and I will decrease. Observe the humility of John in pointing out his cousin Jesus's, Jesus according to the flesh as the Lamb of God, whose rising popularity must soon eclipse his own. There was a lot in what John the Baptist said here. These very few words describe his recollection, or a recognition rather, of who he was, what he was sent to do, and what he was not. And he's pointing to Jesus as the bridegroom. And so where the bridegroom is, you know that there's the calling for the bride. This gives us the basis for the Christian connection between the bride of, of Christ being the church and then Christ being the bridegroom. Such a connection can only have a grand and glorious end result in the spiritual sense once this age is over and the bride has been completed. So what we're saying is this bride of Christ is being developed throughout this whole Christian age. How does it culminate? Where does it, where, where's the fruition of this? Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So there's a powerful thought here. The bride has made herself ready. This is a heavenly picture. You've got all of the faithful ones for, through all of the Christian age now in heaven in this picture in Revelation ready for this marriage of the Lamb. And it is a magnificent, magnificent scene. And it talks about the fact that the bride has made herself ready. So the true church, the church, not a building, not a place to go to, but something to be part of that's described as the bride of Christ. Should you go to church? Yeah, yeah, you should. But the whole purpose of going to church is to be part of the church. Is that why we go? We've got to ask ourselves those questions. So Jonathan, am I just going to church or am I striving to be part of the church? To be a prospective part of the bride of Christ should have a mind-boggling effect on us. <laughs> This is saying that Jesus' true and faithful disciples are in line for an eternal connection and relationship with Jesus. The best part is that this is only one picture of the destiny of the church in heaven. And this made me think of John chapter 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
to have a relationship with Christ described as personal, as being a bride, that's an amazing pos- uh, opportunity. But I have a question. Are you required to be part of a particular denomination in order to be part of this bride class? That's a good question. And denominationalism is not something that existed originally in, in the true church human beings formed denominationalism. So just by definition of how it came into be, the answer is no. No, it's not part of any particular denomination. It is the calling out to follow Christ, to be a footstep follower of his that is the most important thing. So no, denominationalism has no part, no part in this. That's an important aspect of the bride of Christ. Okay, and I bet you're going to say that donating a lot of money can't buy my way in, right? I, I'm going to say that. Donating <laughs> a lot of money cannot buy your way in. It just can't because it's not about, it, it's a, it, it's not about the outward. It's about the development of the heart and mind to be in line and walk in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus didn't donate a lot of money. He donated all of himself. That's the footsteps that we follow. Let's mm-hmm. go back to Revelation 19.8 for another description of what a, being a part of the church entails. And again, we're going to reread Revelation 19, uh, verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay, so the saints are the bride, but this made no sense to me. I had to read it in the contemporary English version. It says this, she will be given a wedding dress made of pure and shining linen. The linen stands for the good things God's people have done. So in other words, the bride is wearing this special linen representing her as being righteous. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So the saints describing those who make up the bride. Do I have that right? You absolutely have that right. Sure. And, and so right. here's what we have. We have the church being the people. We have the bride of Christ as a, an example of the, the relationship between Christ and the church. And now we have this other thought that the, they're, they're clothed with the righteous acts of the saints. So this is now going to expand our understanding of being part of the church in a very profound way. This word for saint in the New Testament is a special word. Saint means sacred, physically pure, morally blameless, or religious, ceremonial, consecrated. This is the same word used for holy as in Holy Spirit, the righteous acts of the holy ones or the saints. How lofty that is. (laughs) Now, holy as in Holy Spirit, John the Baptist's words read, in Matthew 3.11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, we all understand the Holy Spirit is to be God's power and influence. It's holy. It's sacred. It's different. The word for saint is the exact same word. Understand the profound responsibility of being called holy, just like God's Holy Spirit. That's what this is talking about. So, again, going to church, that's nice, but it's got to be transformative to becoming holy in that same way. So, this, this, this word, 
that's used to describe the sacredness of God's Spirit is used to describe the sacredness of Jesus' true disciples. That's really what we're saying here. In some churches, the word saint is used as a title for those who, who are few and far between and are recognized as worthy by those in power in those particular denominations. Many people pray to saints, even though scripturally we aren't specifically told to do so. But one argument for it is that in this life we're told to pray for others and we ask them to pray for us. So why, Rick, wouldn't that be even more effective if one of our friends or family were faithful and they're in heaven in the presence of God and Jesus? Can't they put in a good word, as they would say? Nice thought, but entirely <laughs> inappropriate from okay. a scriptural perspective. Because, because, because there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men. And then there's one advocate between the true church and God, and that's Jesus. You know, there's lots of angels in heaven. Does, do the scriptures ever tell us to pray to the angels so they can get to God? No. No, I never. Mm-mm. So why would we even remotely begin to think that praying to an individual who was faithful even unto death and went to heaven is appropriate when all of the scriptures, all of the scriptures, and I just want to stress, all of the scriptures say we pray to our Heavenly Father through Jesus. That's the model. That's all we have. Anything other, to me, and this is a Rick opinion, is I think is blatant idolatry. We cannot go down that road. So no, it is not an appropriate uh, circumstance to be praying to somebody who you think had been faithful. And by the way, what makes them faithful? What makes it so that they're in heaven? How do you know? Do we vote on it? Isn't that God's decision? I mean, Julie, there's so many pieces to this. So no, not a good idea, okay? (laughs) Let's move on. In the Bible, this word is used, this word for holy, this word for saint, is used to describe each and every true follower of Jesus. And this, again, this is profound, folks. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. It's interesting that when you look at the beginning of the Apostle Paul's letters, he frequently says to the saints, to all the saints, to the church with the saints, the holy ones, with those who are consecrated according to the definition of the word, set apart for God's holy purpose. That's who he is addressing. This is big. This is very, very, very responsible. This is almost scary when you see how big it is to see how you're supposed to be viewed in the eyes of others because this is how you're viewed in the eyes of God. Ephesians 1.18 tells us this just in a slightly different way. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. His inheritance in the holy ones, in the called out ones. This is what true Christianity is called to be. These saints have much work to do regarding attaining and maintaining their purity in Christ. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Jonathan, let's just stop right though very quickly after verse 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You think about it, it says, be imitators of God. Why does it say that? Because you are holy. You are looked at with the 
eyes of reverence because you are trying to be like our Heavenly Father. Now, obviously, we can't even come close to that. But the point is that this is what we strive for, to leave our humanness behind and raise up to higher levels of spirituality. And verses 3 to 5 give us a, a perspective on that. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness in silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So basically, we need to continually clean our character. That's right. These words, immorality, impurity, filthiness, covetousness. When you closely study these words in the Greek, the Apostle Paul is talking about sexual sins and even being inappropriate and careless in the way we talk and how we joke. A Bible commentary from David Gusick said this, we must notice the theme of the moral appeal. It isn't avoid these things so you can be a saint. Rather, it is you are a saint. Now live in a manner fitting for a saint. The sort of behavior Paul says is not fitting for saints was pretty much completely approved by the culture of his day and our own, end quote. So we're supposed to be transformed by following the footsteps of Jesus and rising to this spiritual level. And it's not about going to church to feel like you're a good person, like you're checking a box off so you can go to heaven. It's much higher than that. It is. And we need to understand that this is a a way of life in every aspect that we can possibly imagine. The saints as members of the church will be members of God's household. Again, how do you get there? You act in a saintly fashion. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Up to this point, we've been referring to the church more in a prospective sense, those striving to be part of the heavenly church, this bride of Christ. But here there's two different categories of people. You said, uh, Jonathan, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. What's the difference? That's a really good question, and that's a, that's a subtlety that we want to draw attention to. What's the Apostle Paul saying? You are fellow citizens. He's writing to the, 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 the Holy Spirit-begotten individuals in Ephesians. You are fellow citizens with the saints. What he's saying is, you are on your way to be faithful like those who have already proven themselves. So he's drawing that subtle difference between being on the road to faithfulness and having already been proven faithful. And the Apostle does that several times in his writings in the New Testament. So it's important to realize that he's recognizing that just because you claim the name of Christ and you may be begotten by God's Spirit doesn't mean you're the saint. It means that you are on the road. You are in the developmental process. That's how big this is. So, Jonathan, am I just going to church or am I striving to be part of the church? To be a saint, according to Scripture, is to be a called-out and faithful disciple of Jesus. It is to be recognized as sacred before God, and therefore ultimately sacred before all of the world in the future. What higher privilege can any human being ever be given? Wow. This goes well beyond just going to church on Sunday. 
It's so much bigger. We need to be serious about our calling and individual responsibility in developing Christ-likeness. There is a seriousness here that most of us don't take the time to pause and consider. And so that's why asking such a simple question is, do Christians have to go to church? Opens the door for understanding what the church truly is and the part we're supposed to play. All we can be is humble as we see the descriptions and privileges of being prospective members of the church accumulate. Being the church and not just going to church, being prospective members of the Bride of Christ and being saints, what more could there possibly be? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. As is usually the case with Scripture, the gold, the gold being mined here is rich and plentiful. Our next Being the Church discovery is directly linked to the last link uh, to being prospective saints. So we've got all of these different pictures, all of these different links, and what we're going to find is they're all integrated together. Let's reread Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, and then add a few verses, as this will open up another connection to what it means to be a part of the church. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. And here's what we've read so far. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now we add verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Holy in this verse is the same word used for saints. We are the building. We are being fitted and shaped, trimmed and polished for a position in God's glorious temple in heaven. We are living stones cut out of the quarry of humanity. But we can't forget our purpose, which is to bless all the families of the earth. So now we have the church which is made up of those called to be members of the Bride of Christ, as we've already discussed, who are sacred in God's eyes and called saints, as we uh, have already discussed. Now, the same group of individuals are likened to a building, a holy temple in the Lord. Such a temple is a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. That's what the Scripture says. It's a dwelling place. This is an entirely different picture that teaches us more about what being the church really means. This goes beyond just entering a building with a pretty cross on top. You are the building, one of the building blocks of this metaphorical holy temple. A temple is where religion is kept. It's a place of sacred meaning and worship. It's so important to realize that each one of these pictures adds dimensions to what it means to be part of the church. So again, we're saying, do Christians have to go to church? That's a good thing. But look at how important it is to be the church. That's the point. Going to church is supposed to be for the purpose of enhancing being the church. Let's go into this temple a little bit further. The Apostle Paul knew that he was responsible to contribute to the building of this temple. So, you know, we talked about him building up the brotherhood. Now now he's focusing it on the building of this temple. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 11, and then Jonathan go to verses 16 and 17. 
According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let me pause there. Remember, we talked about that before. Upon this rock, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. Continuing, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let me get this straight, because if we have this right, this is huge. We are God's representatives for the benefit of all humanity? This is reinforced with 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And you hear people, if they're really into exercise or eating right, they'll say, my body is a temple. And they probably don't even realize this comes directly from Scripture. It does, and it's an important aspect of what being a true Christian is. And it's an important aspect of the question of do Christians have to go to church? Why do we go? Is it to feel good or is it to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can be the representation of God's Spirit here and now in our world? I mean, think about that as the responsibility. Being part of this temple, this church, means being very different than those around us. Again, let's go to 2 Corinthians this time, chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Let me pause here. Belial means worthless or wicked. Or this could possibly be another name for Satan. Let's continue. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There are such extremes here. You've got believers and unbelievers, righteous lawlessness, light darkness. There's no walking in the middle of the road. We're either the temple of the living God or it says we are idolatrous. So this means we really need to understand what it means to be the temple of the living God, because we certainly don't want to be the other one. And this scripture shows us the vast differences that we should have with the world around us. Do not be bound with unbelievers. And it goes into all of these different kinds of examples. It is telling us you are different, you must live differently, not just on Sunday, every day of every week of your life because you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. So because of all of this, our going to church becomes a very active, very engaged aspect of our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
I, I love these verses because it talks about greet one another with a holy kiss. That's the word. All the saints greet you. That's the same word. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's the same word. The point is, be like-minded. Live in peace. Be different. Be living on a higher level. And folks, look, if we're going to church and feeling good about it, that's nice. But does that sound anything, anything like what we've been describing according to Scripture here? You've got to ask yourself that question as we move through this, because this is the biblical explanation and understanding of the church. Our, quote-unquote, church interactions are to be with the highest respect as we seek to build one another up. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 to 32. And this is from the Young's Literal Translation. Let no corrupt word out of your mouth go forth, but what is good unto the needful building up, that it may give grace to the hearers, and make not sorrowful the Holy Spirit of God, in which you were sealed to a day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and become one to another kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, according as also God and Christ did forgive you. You know, that's why the Holy Spirit is referred to as a comforter. This clearly indicates a necessity for such comfort coming from the prospective church members for other footstep followers of Christ. And yes, this is a daily responsibility. And part of that is you started reading, uh, let no corrupt word out of your mouth go forth. That means no evil speaking, no slander, or something even with a gossipy flavor. And sometimes that flavor can taste pretty good because you have the power to corrupt others. You can stir up trouble. You can degrade others. But rather, again, we're to take that extreme opposite position. Our speech should make peace. It should build others up. It should be encouraging. It should be full of praise and blessings. We reverence God by respecting his people. And this is how we build up the other parts of this temple, these prospective members in the Bride of Christ. Christianity, and boy, we're saying it a lot, it's more than going into a building on the weekend. And, you know, you think about Jesus when he cleared the temple out just before, you know, a few days before his crucifixion. And he said, you know, you've, you've taken my father's house and made it into a den of thieves. Do we take the privilege of being the temple of God's Spirit and make it into that den of thieves. That's the, that's, it's the same kind of thing. We are a, a personification of the holiness that represents God himself. Folks, that's a big thing. So, Jonathan, am I just going to church or am I striving to be part of the church? To be prospective members of this church of God through Christ means that we are being built into a figurative temple, a place for God's Spirit to permanently dwell. Such a privilege requires far more than just showing up. Maybe we have to ask ourselves, are we really going to church? Hmm. Are we going to where the church is? If you are going to church but not getting what the Bride of Christ needs, maybe you're going to a place that just calls itself a church. Wow. Um, source, um, I read an article at theguardian.com, and it, here's, here's what it said. Churches are closing at rapid numbers in the United States, researchers say, as congregations dwindle across the country and a younger generation of Americans abandon Christianity altogether. 
as the U.S. adjusts to an increasingly non-religious population, thousands of churches are closing each year in the country, a figure that experts believe may have been accelerated during the COVID-19 pandemic. So here's my question. How can we have interactions with these other temple stones if churches all around our neighborhood are closing? That's a that's an issue. That's certainly an issue. We need to seek out those that have that same desire, that same like precious faith. Look for those who are looking at this in a higher way. They're out there. There's not a lot of them likely, but they're out there and engage in fellowship with with, with those. And you know what? Sometimes it's not easy to find. And all of this comes down to individual situations and circumstances, but we want to understand it's a personal responsibility. If you are driven, if you are driven by God's Spirit and you believe that the Holy Spirit is showing and, 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 and opening up God's Word, we need to do something about it because that is, it means stepping up to a higher level than, like Jonathan, you said, maybe you're going to a place that calls itself the church, but maybe it's just not showing you spirituality. Maybe it's showing you comfort. Comfort and spirituality, folks, I'm sorry, but oftentimes they just simply don't mix. One of the foundation scriptures we began today's episode with was Ephesians 5, 22 to 27, uh, which highlighted the powerful teaching of Jesus as the head of the church. This was a catalyst for seeing so many other scriptural ways that we as his disciples are described. So let's continue in Ephesians 5, uh, and we will see another, another powerful illustration. We last left off with 527. Let's continue with Ephesians 5, 28 through 32, starting with verses 28 and 29. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So this reference, as we had discussed previously, to the loving, uh, to, to loving a spouse as you love your own body is the second part of Paul's teaching. He's taking that spousal relationship, and now he's adding another dimension, talking about loving your own body. Let's go to verses 30 to 32. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The Apostle Paul here is pointedly using the illustration of a body, a human body, as another way of comprehending the role the church plays in God's plan here and now as well through eternity. So we've opened that door. We're going to go through it uh, just in a moment. Going from being recognized as saints, as holy before God, and being recognized as part of the body of Christ makes perfect sense together. What more is required now that we see ourselves as prospective members of the body of Christ? Being part of the church shows us a calling out to a new life. Being part of the Bride of Christ shows us the necessary purity of our lot that our life should reflect. Being saints shows us the importance that we have in God's eyes. Being a holy temple of God, that shows us that God is using all of Jesus' faithful disciples as an evidence of his plans and his purposes. Now we look at being the body of Christ 
to see how we individually fit in as part of this magnificent whole. So this next description of the body of Christ models the individual role that each and every faithful individual disciple of Jesus plays. So this adds a dimension that we have not really spoken about yet. All are equally important in the body of Christ, even if our natural perspective tells us otherwise. If we come from a lesser background, our natural inclination is to see ourselves as lesser. Let's read 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 19, starting with verses 14 through 16. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. We might get discouraged because we are just the spleen, and someone else is clearly the more prominent and effective mouth who can preach all these wonderful things to help people. We might be inclined to minimize our talents and what we're called to do when we think that someone else is so much obviously better than us in all the important ways. We get discouraged. Well, this illustration helps us see the importance of what we are called to do regardless of our pre preconceived lack of abilities. We don't want to compare ourselves to others in a negative or discouraging way. And that is such a trap because there's always somebody that can do it better than I can. And so you got to look at that and say, oh man, no, you look at it and say, wait, 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 I have been called to be a part of this. And it doesn't matter what they're called to be. What matters is the grace that God has bestowed upon me. What am I going to do with it? And that's, Paul goes further with this. He then explains how damaging it is for any Christian to minimize their contribution to this body. Jonathan, let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 17 to 20 now. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. We are placed exactly where God needs us to be. Let's appreciate the whole reason we're here. It's not what we can't do, but what the Lord sees in us. Amen. It is absolutely what the Lord sees in us. And the way to understand that is to stop looking at ourselves through our own eyes. Look at ourselves through the eyes of one who has been called out and look through the eyes of the Heavenly Father. He called you because, not, not because you're great, but because you are important to his overall plan. That should be what we focus on. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 12 by explaining that those with higher backgrounds, maybe more successful, maybe more eloquent, must be careful to not have the highest honor of all body members. In fact, he tells us that those who are less noticeable are those with the absolute highest importance. It's exactly the opposite of what humanity looks at. It reminds me of Jesus washing the feet. You know, here he yeah. is the master, and yet he becomes the servant. So it's a balance. We can't have our self-esteem that's so low that we won't allow ourselves to be used by God in his service. But if we think too highly of ourselves, we take the focus off of God and Jesus and make it all about me. So we, have, we all have this contribution to the whole, but we aren't the only body part. All parts work together for the whole health of the body of the church. 
And isn't that a great thing? Thank goodness the whole body isn't the same because you yeah. don't have the, the ability to function as a unit if you were all the same. You've got to ask yourself, okay, so, so why is it set up this way? Well, you know, just go back to the Apostle Paul because he's going to tell us exactly why. In 1 Corinthians 12, Jonathan, let's do now 24 to 26. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. There is no hierarchy of status in the body of Christ. No hierarchy of status. There's no division. There's no social order. There's no influencer that stands above and beyond everyone else. There's no, n- nobody who is ordained to be uh, in a different position than the rest. There is no division because all are equal. That's the message here. Let's go a little further. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 13. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We all must be contributors to this body no matter what member we may be. And you know, it's interesting in this verse you talk about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. How do they get there? Well, a lot of denominations make this appointment thing, and they say, we're going to decide who your pastors and teachers are. That's not what the Bible told us. The Bible told us that the congregation, the church, is supposed to work on establishing its own leadership from within. That's a very novel idea in today's Christianity. And the beauty of that, and, and, and look, let me give you a personal example. I am an elder, a minister in our local group. We have our elections from within because that's the way the scriptures tell us to do it. And we try very hard to do it that way. And that means, that means, Jonathan and Julie, that at, at some point with the next election, the least member of our group could end up being the vote that casts me out of the position of elder. And I say to that, thank God. Thank God for that setup, because what that shows is absolute equality of each member of the body. And folks, look, you may go to church, but are you being part of the church? Are you following through on all of these things that we're learning in terms of understanding the function of the body? If you're not getting it where you're going, you have to ask yourself, why do I go there? What should I do instead? So as we begin to wrap this up, what we want to do now is look at personal contributions. Remember, we're talking about the body and how each member is different. There's lots and lots of ways that we can, as individuals, be contributors to this body of Christ. We're going to touch on just a few. So Jonathan, let's get us started with that, please. We contribute by being spiritually stimulating to one another. And Rick, 25 years ago, we started Christian Questions, and this was our theme text, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate or provoke one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
very quickly. The question, do we Christians have to go to church? What did it say in the Scripture? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. What's that telling you? Be together. And you can say, well, we can do it on Zoom. Sure you can. But if you have the option to be in person, what do you think Jesus would tell you to do? Do you think he'd tell you to sit at home and say, hey, just get on Zoom because it's more convenient? Or do you think he'd tell us to go be amongst one another, to build one another up in this most holy faith? Think about that. Julie, what's next in terms of contribution? We contribute by loving one another, and that doesn't work well if we don't ever associate with each other. <laughs> John 15, 12 to 14 says, this is Jesus. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I think what this tells us is we want to be individually present for others whenever we possibly can. And part of that love, we've got to learn to love each other. That's a whole nother a whole nother topic about how big that love has to be. Yeah, and this is that selfless kind of love, that love that puts others just way before you. But you know, that love also, there, there, there's a different aspect to loving one another. Jonathan, let, let's get into that. Yeah, our love for each other is both a brotherly love as well as a selfless love. First Peter 1, 22 and 23 from the Young's Literal Translation. Your souls having purified in the obedience of the truth through the Spirit to brotherly love unfeigned, out of a pure heart one another love ye earnestly, being begotten again, not out of seed corruptible, but incorruptible through a word of God, living and remaining to the age. So there's a lot in this scripture, but the point that we're really, really driving at is brotherly love unfeigned. That's the Philadelphia love. That's the family kind of love. That's the being in the foxhole together kind of love versus that selfless love. Both of them are really important. And folks, how do you develop that brotherly love and that selfless love unless you're interacting with one another? And this, as the Apostle Peter says, is one of the responsibilities throughout the end of this age until the true church is complete. Julie, what's next in terms of contribution? Well, we contribute by knowing who our brother and sister are and selflessly serving them. Galatians 5.13 says, For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In context, Paul is telling the Jewish Christians that they're no longer under the rituals, the ceremonies, and heavy obligations of the law. They now would have liberty from the law. But Paul warns that that doesn't mean that you get to do anything that you want. Don't make this Christian liberty an excuse for self-indulgence. Ironically, we're to use this freedom to go back into servitude in the unlimited serving of the brotherhood. And in this way, we serve Christ. That's a beautiful picture of servitude that comes from freedom. It's freedom with a very pointed and sacred responsibility. My wife and I are in an environment with our brethren that has an infectious desire to help and support each other. It makes me want to work even harder because I see the beauty and blessing that comes from that. And that's why we need to get together. Do we need to go to church? Yes! Be with those of that same, that same sense of faith that can help build you up, build them up, and then help those who are in the greatest need. It's such an important factor here. Jonathan, what's next? We contribute by continually encouraging each other. We all need encouragement. Hebrews 3, 13 and 14. 
but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have been partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firmly unto the end. It's from beginning to end that this process has to work, encouraging one another day after day after day. Be engaged, mutually encouraging. Julie, one last contribution. We contribute by being involved in each other's lives in a compassionate and upbuilding way. We'll read Colossians 3, 12 and 13, and verse 16. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on our heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should we. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How are we, think about this, how are we individually and collectively reflecting Christ? There's a quote that's often attributed to Mahatma Gandhi, but it's more likely from an Indian philosopher in the mid-1920s. Here's the quote, Jesus is ideal and wonderful. But you Christians, you are not like him. A recent survey asked, what causes people to doubt Christianity? Among those with no faith or from other faiths, the number one answer was the hypocrisy of religious people. Among Christians themselves, it was the number two reason why they themselves doubt Christianity. The first was having no explanation for human suffering, another topic. But individually, we really need to stop and consider if, as Jonathan, you read, the word of Christ is richly dwelling in us. Are we holy with that heart of compassion, kindness, humility, and so forth? Collectively, this gospel message has been perverted somewhere along the way. We have this opportunity only by God's grace. Are we taking it seriously enough? That is an important question. There are so many ways to contribute. There's so many descriptions. Am I taking this seriously enough each and every day of my Christian walk? Without exception. You know what? This is one thing from which there is no vacation. You do not vacate discipleship. It is a part of you. It drives you, and it transforms you. That's what being part of the church is. So, Jonathan, one last time, am I just going to church, or am I striving to be part of the church? Having a prospect of being part of the church, part of the bride of Christ, saints, a holy temple of God, and a member of the body of Christ is an unearned privilege that can only come from God calling us and from being acceptable through Christ and his sacrifice. When we think about going to church, let us be clear that such an activity is an important but small detail when compared with the responsibility of being part of the church. Let us maximize our privileges and contribute to our fellow disciples. Folks, this ends up being a personal decision based on how you see your Christianity. Do you feel like God's Spirit is guiding you? Then shouldn't it be guiding you to those who are living these principles rather than to an environment that's just having fun or being happy? Nothing wrong with happiness. There's nothing wrong with fun. But it all has to be done within the context of I am a living disciple of Jesus Christ, begotten by God's Spirit. I am called to be part of the church as a saint of God. 
What am I doing with it? Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, Who is God? Part one. Talk to you about that next week. <laughs>